0: welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today for the second time in Country Stride's history in the honeypot village of Cumbria glenn ridding and i'm in the company of author illustrator and our guide for today's walk mark richards hello mark
1: hello david we're back again the sun's shining only just hell has gone all shy on us and it's hiding behind a few clouds i think but anyway we're heading that way
0: yes it was um balmy weather last week half term week uh, blue skies pretty much every day Uh, If anything, a little bit too hot for the high peaks. So I'm pleased that there's a a brisk breeze today because we're tackling one of the big ones today,
1: one of the Lakeland greats, Mark. Where are we heading? Right, I did say it, Helvellyn. It's an enigmatic mountain. It has a great impact on people who climb it. It'll be the, only the second time that Country Stride will have reached the 3,000-foot contour.
0: It's been a long time, really, since we've had a, a chance to really stretch our legs on the high fells, partly because of the various lockdowns. And, of course, Helvellyn has some remarkable ascents, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, pretty. Anybody who climbs from the east are lured by the edges. Mm. Everybody's heard of Striding Edge and tend to walk it Towards the mountain from Burkhouse Moor or from the hole in the wall. We went up to as far as the hole in the wall with Terry Abraham on the eighth episode, but this time we're heading for Swirrel Edge. Yeah. Okay. And people tend to come down Swirrel Edge. If you're doing that
0: horseshoe, which obviously is one of Lakeland's great walks. Although one is always tempted to do it that way round, i.e. striding edge first, it is arguably safer,
1: isn't it, the, the other way round? Going the other way round. The only one downside to it is you're meeting everybody going the other way. Yes, that's, that's true, <laughs> isn't it? I not <laughs> thought about that. And we're talking
0: about something very interesting here today, Mark. M- many of our listeners will probably know that the Common here, Glen in Common, is actually managed uh, at the moment by the John Muir Trust.
1: I've been a member of the John Muir Trust almost since it was founded because I understood, particularly in this Scottish founding, that it had a definite role to play. It'll be interesting to understand the thinking behind their influence in this particular area. What's also interesting,
0: we're going to do a route that takes in not only Glenridding Common, but we're actually going to go down into Thirlmere. So we're doing a linear walk today and John Muir Trust are also doing work in Thurlmere, in the catchment there with United Utilities. So it'll be interesting to talk about the kind of different approaches of managing these great open spaces for nature, for people, for commoners, all of these different groups. Who's our guest today, Mark?
1: It's Tom Hayek, who is the England and Wales Development Officer of the John Muir Trust.
0: And we're going to talk about... Not only what John Muir are doing here, but also this great fell, uh, a favourite of so many people. And just on that note, Mark, do you have a favourite ascent
1: yourself? Well, that's that's interesting, that. It tends to be up uh, what I call hard edge out of Nethermost Cove up onto Nethermost Pike. That, to me, is Helvellyn in every dimension without actually being on Helvellyn itself. Because it's all part of the massif.
0: Yeah, and you get that great profile view, don't you, of Striding Edge?
1: Oh yes, you see everything in perspective, and you get the real mountain feel. You could be in the Scottish Highlands, you could be in the Alps, it could be anywhere wild and wonderful.
0: Yeah, Uh, a little bit of traffic noise in the background now, just a reminder that even outside of Half Term this is that honeypot village isn't it and that air of expectation for the many people here who've got their eyes set on the high ones so with that in mind let's go and meet Tom
1: As the tarmac moves to a gravel track by the first terrace of old miners' cottages, I get a wonderful perspective of the valley uh, on Keldis over to the south. The bracken is now beginning to consume the wonderful swathes of bluebells. You can just see the blue there, but it's disappearing. And I can look round to Little Cove and Bleak Cove on Berghouse Moor, and the sun's shining. It's quite warm. It's just a lovely moment just to pause and uh, have a little word with Tom. Uh, Tom, where do you come from? Where, what's your basis of uh, involvement with the John Muir
2: Trust? This is, I guess, career number two for me. So I've been in conservation for about 13 years now in the conservation sector, um, previously working mainly within the wildlife trust movement for three different wildlife trusts. And I joined John Muir Trust, uh, oof, just over 18 months ago. That is a role, a new role, that's funded by the Esme Fairburn Foundation to look at how the Trust can have an influence on wild places outside sort of traditional stomping grounds in Scotland.
1: You have got a responsibility for Glen reading
2: Common. When did that begin? Uh, that began in uh, 2017. Um, conversations started before that with the National Park. Uh, they were looking for somebody to take on management of of this area and we put our uh, hat in the ring um, and and that lease started in uh, 2017. Uh, That was an initial three-year lease uh, which obviously has now expired but we're on now a year's extension and uh, that was to look at 2,000 hectares of mainly land owned by the National Park Authority but there is also a bit of land jointly owned with the National Trust.
1: And that means you've got a responsibility for an upland area, a grazed farming landscape visited by lots of people.
2: Yeah, huge footfall. I mean, as as we were, as you were saying when we were down in the village, it's uh, it is a honey pot. Our property manager Pete was telling me yesterday you couldn't park after ten o'clock. It was uh, so so busy, and, and we do see that in terms of some of the impact on the footpaths and and litter and, and that kind of thing. Um, It is, as you say, a farmed landscape. Most of that is actively farmed by two commoners uh, and we work with them on some of their agri-environment schemes. So
1: Glenridding Common, what mountains does that embrace?
2: The big one is Helvellyn, uh, where we're going to Peak today in mm-hmm. terms of altitude. Uh, to the east of that, uh, which we'll pass just under, is Cattsdy Cam, which is as obvious a landmark as you can spot from lots of directions, and, and is one of my favourite hills, I think. And then we move round to the west, and there's there's a ridge which encompasses Nethermost Pike, Dolly Wagon, and then down to Fairfield. We follow the ridge from Helvellyn north to uh, to Raise, down into Sticks Pass back up to Stybarrow Dodd, uh, and then we sort of come back round under Sheffield Pike, which isn't within the lease, uh, and sort of curl all the way back round to Glenridding. Our journey today takes us up through that terrain
1: under Castecam, gets to the watershed, uh, and then you have a relationship with your neighbour on
2: the other side, I would imagine. Our land is absolutely stitched to the centimetre with United Utilities landholding in the Thirlmere catchment and working with them gives us this great opportunity for for real landscape scale uh, work uh, with a much bigger range of partners too.
1: Well, we've reached an interesting point where people coming down from Sticks Pass join the regular way that leads over the Glenridding Beck up towards Red Tarn. And we're within sight of Catsticam, just the very peak, and I can look back towards Place Fell and the great scree slopes of Sheffield Pike with crags and heather coming out of there. Uh, And up to our right, uh, Tom, we've got a a very distinct forest of uh, juniper.
2: Yeah this is this is one of the real features of Glenridding Common. Um, I mean it almost almost looks like a sort of ancient landscape up there, doesn't it, it with does. all of these uh, boulders and the thick juniper scrub. Um, so that's something that uh, we've been doing quite a lot of work on. We've been working with the commoners who uh, through their agri environment schemes some of that's been fenced off, which is fantastic and we've been planting back into those enclosures in order to get a bit of diversity of of habitat in there.
1: Now I'd like to actually divert our thoughts to the origins of the John Muir enigma. I do seem to remember John Muir was born in Scotland in Dunbar and his parents emigrated to America uh, and he really got into the wilds and I know one thing that he took President Roosevelt to the Yosemite Valley and from there sprung the whole magical idea of national parks. But can you give us a bit of a flavour of it from your perspective, Tom?
2: Yeah, all that's true. Uh, He was 10 when the family moved out uh, to the States, so there was obviously a bit of a gap before that trip to Yosemite, where he built his knowledge and experience and and real love for wild places. You could call him an awful lot of things, geographer, explorer, conservationist... um, probably one of the first people to think about mental well-being in the outdoors in in the kind of way that we do now. It was his love for this wildness and what it could do for the... He referred a lot to the human spirit. That was a lot of the kind of terminology that he used that led him to think that these places needed to be protected.
1: He saw the soul in the landscape and how it could help the
2: human soul. John Muir did things by extremes on occasion. Um, One famous story is of him out walking in a pine forest in in a thunderstorm and to really experience the storm. He climbed the tree about as high as he could get, lashed himself to the top of the trunk and spent apparently three hours swaying in this thunderstorm just to really experience its extremes. John
1: Muir was one of these characters who not only loved the mountains and wild places, but he realised that everything was connected.
2: For John Muir, the phrase we use is is mosquitoes to mountain ranges. You know, nothing was too small, nothing was too big to create uh, a fascination and and a sense of wonder. Um, And one of the quotes that we often use that, that he said is, when we try to pick anything out by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. So absolutely this idea that nothing is on its own. Everything is connected.
1: And um, the John Muir Trust occurred here at what time?
2: I can tell you it's almost 40 years ago because we have our 40th anniversary next year. And it started from uh, a, a bit of wild land that was uh, under threat in the west of Scotland from uh, a potential compulsory purchase by the Ministry of Defence to use as a bombing range. And there were a few mountaineers who used to frequent that area a lot, loved it, loved what it did uh, for them and getting away from it all. And they approached the communities living there, the crofters, and said, can we work with you to protect this place? What can we do? And, and that's really where it came from. And that's how we've worked ever since, really, is uh, talk to people, then talk a bit more, and then you probably need to talk a bit more, and then you might just have started to get your head around the intricacies and the nuances of, what makes a place tick. Mm. Um, And that's so important to who we are as an organization is to understand how the rural economy works, how the farming practices work, what people depend on, what threats people see, so that we can get a really holistic solution for protecting any one bit of landscape.
1: We'll connect ourselves with the outdoors a bit more now. We'll cross back above the weir, cross the bridge and head up the valley towards Red Town ultimately. We're heading up the valley now with a drama of cats to come ahead of us. We've come to a waters meet uh, with a complex sheepfold, decrepit state, but it must have been a a significant point for the commoners to sort out their sheep. Above here, you can see people coming down the Styx path from Keppel Cove direction. Uh, Up there, of course, there is a broken dam. And the significance of me mentioning that is that there was a water leak running under the slopes, the high slopes of cam, which is a very striking feature from here. It went right across above the skyline here, over Redtown Beck, across the slopes of Birkhouse Moor, to where we are standing now, and there's a, a birch tree. A, I can see a lone birch tree, which was the end of the leet, and there was a launder that is a wooden trough carrying the water, catapulting it with the mounting hydro pad down this slope, came down to here where there is the remains of a concrete platform where the hydro plant was. And this was part of the greenside mine endeavor. Uh, if I look back towards Sheffield Pike, you can see the squeeze and the spoil of uh, Lucy's tongue, which we all have, If you remember, go back to our uh, second episode of Country Stride with Eddie Poole, who worked in that mine. And this was the scene of great industry. It was where all the employment was outside of shepherding for a long period of time. So you're seeing a dynamic industrial landscape. Today, our attention's far more on the pastoral. We made it to the Leet actually, Tom. Uh, it's overgrown with uh, sedges and rushes. I can see, if I look to the west, the great zigzags of the bridleway that goes up onto the shoulders of Rays and up to Whiteside, which is the old pony route. Historically, tourists bought a uh, local guide services and he would take you up Helvellyn that way. Actually, as we walk up this path, this is very much the down path of the usual horseshoe when people go up striding edge over the top and back down via squirrel edge. And so we've been meeting all manner of people. In fact, there's a couple of folk coming down now. Well, it's great to see you. You've uh, obviously been testing hell, Velen. Is this your first holiday after lockdown? It is our
0: first trip. Yeah, first Friday. trip after lockdown.
1: And where are you staying?
0: I'm in Oh, oh, nice. Yeah.
1: So the sort of the place completely different from this kind of wild setting. So this is quite something to come here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how far did you get today? Um,
0: so we didn't quite make it to the top. <laughs> uh, There's some quite low clouds just um, as we we're ascending. But uh, we walked most of the way along Striding Edge and then we went back down and then came up. Um, the Swirrel Edge. Is, yep, Swirrell Edge. And then had lunch and then we... Come back down again. <laughs>
1: uh, but the cloud's gone now. you You've, yeah, I know, I you've know. blown it away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, well then you. you well, very much. I hope you'll come again. Yep. Have you got the bug to come? Definitely.
0: Absolutely, yeah. We'll, we'll come back uh, hopefully maybe the other, the other side of summer.
1: End of summer, yeah. Well all to ask you where you come from? Yep. Um, so I'm Seb. I come from London. Wow, this is lovely to encounter a family out on the fells. Hey, this is great. <laughs> what, what's the family? What, who are you?
0: We're the Lees, so we've got
1: Simon,
0: I'm Amy. Sophie and, and
1: Sophie and Chloe. Sophie and Chloe. Now, is this a first mountain for you girls? No, no it's the second we've done Snowden before. We've done Snowden before. Gosh, so it's Ben Nevis next? Yeah. <laughs> that, we're working up to it, we're yeah. working up to it, yeah. Brilliant. So what has it been like on the mountain today? Um, it was tricky but... Kind of fun at the same time, very windy, very, yes, very, very, very windy. windy.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. it was harder than we thought it was going to be, but yeah, we're glad we've done it. Absolutely, yeah. okay. uh,
1: did you go along striding edge and down swirl? We, yes. we did, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, brave soldiers. Yeah. And it was in cloud when we were going up, so we yeah. couldn't see it. And then as we got to the summit, all the clouds have cleared and it's been beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yes. Yeah, so you've seen forever. Oh, uh, yeah, did yeah. so. What's the mountain called? Do you know, girls, hell. Brilliant. Well that was lovely meeting that that couple who've made this magical trip up from London. Uh, Actually Tom, it's interesting to get a bit of a feel for how you got into the whole business of the outdoors in this way. What was your earliest ambition?
2: Uh, I was absolutely convinced on leaving school that I was joining the Navy. Uh, I passed the Admiralty Interview Board. Um, I went off to university for three years and realised halfway through that that I didn't really believe in war, (laughs) which is a a bit tricky to follow that career from that point. So I kind of fell into um, a a job in the recruitment sector, which I did for five years, including two years abroad. But actually what I always, always wanted to do was, was... conservation and and um and and a wildlife related job so i took the leap and went back to university did an ecology degree right and did everything i could to follow that dream in addition to your
1: absolute passion for conservation rather like myself you're a great walker and love being in the hills how did you learn to really get into it
2: uh, well, it's really interesting. I was living in, uh, living and working in South Yorkshire at the time, which is um, fairly flat. Well, the bit I was in, obviously, it gets a bit hillier towards the Peak District. Um, and some neighbours said, oh, we're doing the Yorkshire Three Peaks in a few months. Do you want to come with us? And I was uh, a keen rugby player, rower, but never really into hill walking. Um, and I went with them and, and absolutely got the bug from that day. It half killed me. I didn't do any training. Um, and I got home and thought I had some friends who uh, were ploughing through the Munros, and thought, I don't fancy that many trips to Scotland. Little did I know I'd work for an organisation that owned some. Um, and I thought, what, what what's it look like in England? Uh, and I came across the Nuttles.
1: Oh, John and Anne, great friends of mine. Uh, what
2: are the Nuttles? So these are the, uh, the peaks of 2,000 feet or higher with a, a certain prominence, so they have to stand above the land uh, around them. And there are, depending on what count you take, whether it's the original list, the remeasured ones, but there are about 260
1: wow.
2: um, in England and then uh, another set in Wales as well. Right,
1: yeah. And uh, have you any particular favorites that you've climbed?
2: I should say Helvellyn, shouldn't I? Well, maybe, <laughs> it's a good one. I think the the two that really stand out for me are uh, pillar rock. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people know pillar, but actually there's a there's a, a prominent outcrop on the Enerdale side that counts as a peak in its own right with that drop, and that's the only one that you need to be roped. To yes. climb, so I had to learn how to climb up in order to up the slab and notch. Up the slab and notch.
1: What's it like coming down the slab and notch? We
2: have sailed off the top. Oh, <laughs> there you are. Yes. Yeah, quicker, it's... slightly scarier, but you get down there quicker. Uh, second one, just I think, sometimes it's the mountain and sometimes it's the day, isn't it? Oh, and yes. and the day that I ticked barrow off was an incredibly long day with a really really good friend who um i hadn't seen for a long time that just moved back from living abroad and we were absolutely shattered and we stood at the bottom an hour from dusk and said let's let's do it tomorrow and as we started to walk off we said no let's do it today and we got to the top as the sun was starting to set yeah it absolutely stands out
1: And you found a sneaky way off the saddle, I hope. Yes.
2: <laughs> we needed to, it was getting dark quick.
1: <laughs> of course, some of the um, nuttalls sit in territory that is off the beaten track in some respects, and at some is in di- difficult country for other reasons. Yes,
2: yeah, so there are there are four hills uh, particularly, actually, that, that stand out in that kind of category. So uh, they're in MOD land in the North Pennines, around Fell, Meldon Hill... Um, and you can only go on non-firing days for obvious reasons. Uh, There's lots of bits of metal you need to be careful of as you're going around Um, and you have to sign into the guardhouse when you get there in the morning, you have to sign out when you leave. The really incredible thing for me was it, it, it sort of took me back to my childhood. It was one of the few places where as I was walking I could hear insects at the level I remember and and i just wonder if the fact that they're so so they have such a light touch in terms of people's involvement with them because of the dangers where the nature's actually doing a bit better which is something that you wouldn't expect with explosives
1: <laughs> you've come within sight of red tarn or as I always call it, Helvellyn, the lake of the hunting ground. Because I think Helvellyn means lake of the hunting ground. Helvellyn, a Welsh name. From here, you've got this wonderful bowl of the hills. Up to our left, you see lots of little beetle people along the skyline of Striding Edge, right to the pinnacles at the end. And up the great, bold slope up to our right is Castagham. It doesn't really look much from here, but when we get up Swirl Edge, you'll, you'll go, wow, look at that peak. Um, management. This is a place of people. John Mayer Trust, how do you approach all this?
2: Yes, this is a, a really good place to sort of stop and think about what impact we've been able to make on uh, such a heavily peopled landscape both in terms of visitor and and community use. So we're looking at the the face of Helvellyn above the tarn uh, and up there and we definitely can't see it and you probably couldn't even see it if you got your binoculars out there are lots of tiny little plants that uh, our property manager Pete and our ranger Isaac have been planting up there over the last few years. These are real specialist mountain species like uh, downy willow and purple saxifrage that were almost gone from this landscape and uh, it's a it's a fascinating story um, we're not doing it alone what we're doing is taking cuttings and seeds from some of these plants of course under license from natural england we grow them on a bit uh, and then we we pass them on to villagers in glenridding who store them under cloches and greenhouses and, and have developed a, a real specialism of green-fingeredness with notoriously hard-to-grow plants.
1: They're plants with altitude.
2: Uh, indeed. These are plants that uh, grow generally above um, kind of 600 metres uh, at least. Um, they're able to survive those really harsh winters that we get up, up at this kind of altitude. Um, uh, But because of that, they don't grow very high, so it's not like the trees you would expect to see elsewhere in a landscape. And uh, it's hard to describe uh, accurately, but these tiny ledges that we're looking at are where they sit. And Pete has even been known to to be dangling off a rope, um, working with people like the uh, British Mountaineering Club, Um, to get them into the places that that we know they would have been and and are really uh, inaccessible to pressure from from grazing and footfall.
1: I know when the snow's here, people ski down one aspect of that face.
2: Well, Uh, so that's really interesting. Um, The other way we've been working with the British Mountaineering Club is that we actually have worked with them to install the temperature sensor up there Um, because when it gets really cold and people are inclined to ice climb, Um, what we don't want is people to do it when the temperature is too low because as they're going up with their uh, crampons and axes they'll pull bits of turf out um, and they can be exactly the places where uh, where we've been planting so that temperature sensor gives hourly readings in winter Wow. And you can really, really see when it's safe to climb from an ecological point of view.
1: Fascinating. That, of course, is one very definite aspect of physical environmental management. The other is the impact of our boots and all the people we're witnessing today and day after day, week after week, creating paths, making shortcuts, just racing up and down. That is a major challenge.
2: Yeah, so we, uh, we passed our two local lads on the way up um, who've been working with us for three years now. Um, it is a real challenge the footfall here is it can be so so high and we we've seen as we've been walking up places where people take the easy route and uh, cut a new path for themselves Uh, and that's a, a job of constant repair one of the things that we found with somewhere with as high a footfall as this is you can't wait for the big problems to happen you have to keep on top of it constantly repair it, um, and, and these two guys are absolutely fantastic at that. And you don't have fences here, I notice. No, so uh, there are laws against fencing uh, on common land. That's not something that, that's open to us in terms of management.
1: And there's no signs either to direct people.
2: No, that's, that's always a big debate in these kind of wild landscapes, is how much human influence do you want uh, or how much is appropriate, maybe, is a better question. We're, we're potentially looking at providing a bit more signage down at the bottom so people can, can see what they're letting themselves in for, maybe. Um, but but up here, we think that that kind of impact uh, takes away from the wildness of this amazing place that we're in. In terms of the Ridding Common, you have the lease,
1: but it is the commoners, the farmers, the shepherds, who manage the grazing rights, and I have seen the sheep, I've seen uh, the herdwicks, I saw four, I think, on Burkhouse Moor, and I can see three up on Castecam here now. So there's not
2: many, but they have a role. We interact with the commoners um, on a fairly regular basis. Their main relationship, actually, is with Natural England, who the statutory body, so they set the grazing levels, but also the commoners here have entered into an agri-environment agreement where they've done some really positive stuff like changing their time of year. They bring the sheep back onto the fell, which allows some of the habitats a bit more time to get going. Uh, We've talked a bit about the fencing um, a bit further down, which protects some of those areas of uh, juniper scrub that would otherwise be uh, a bit vulnerable to grazing. Uh, But yeah, that's how that interaction works.
1: People love Helvet, they got these wonderful edges and so forth. What, what's your
2: reason, do you feel, the magnetism of the mountain? I think it's, it's a rarity in that it has more challenge than some of the other high fells, um, especially in the Lake District, but not so much that it's impossible. So I think pretty much anybody could have a good go at Striding Edge. Pretty much anybody could have a good go at Swirrel Edge and you really feel like you've achieved and I wonder if that's what draws people. I think the other thing is that people seem to have a, a love for some of the other hills in this area. The number of people I've spoken to who are really passionate about Sheffield Pike um, which you know, doesn't stand out as an icon like this, but I think people just love coming to this area.
1: Certainly Helvellyn. It's a 3,000 foot, people like that, an ocean, uh, and you can see almost anything in the lake district from the top. So uh, I think we should make our way up towards Swirrell Edge. We've made it to the top, Tom, brilliant. We went up Swirl Edge. Fortunately, it was dry enough to get up. A pleasant scramble on days like today. Anyway, we're on the summit, and uh, our faithful listeners will be riveted to hear my view of the panorama. And uh, forgive me, but there's quite a strong wind up here. Anyway, I can look to the north, and of course I can see uh, the Dodds, with Cathra, uh, Great Carver, very distinct little peak there, and Skidder, and uh, a bit of uh, longside edge in Carlside. Uh, I'm just uh, a little to the south of the actual Ordnance Survey column, so the, the view through to Bassetthwaite is just obscured to me. But I can see Grisdale Pike and Hopegill Head and the ridge to Whiteside. And then I can see Grassmoor down to Whiteless Pike uh, and through the gap to Blake Fell. And then I can see Starling Dodd and Herdus and Red Pike, High style High Crag and then the fell to the left of that which is Iron Crag and Haycock and then the mist is swirling over the top of Pillar, so that means that everything to the left of that is lost and that means Great Gable and all that wonderful array of peaks. I can see the drop down towards Wasdale but then you've got Glaromara and to then after that great end and actually you can see the top of Scorfell Pike despite the cloud and Scorfell, Bowfell is definable, Crickle Crags and in the far off distance over the top of Cold Pike, I can see Black Combe, To the left of that, Grey Friar, and then uh, Swirl Howe, a little bit of cloud on Coniston Old Man and Wetherlam and then the uh, Udale Fells. I can see Coniston Water and the sweet rounding. You can see a little bit of Esthwaite Water and the lower part of Windermere and Morecambe Bay fills the far horizon. Uh, below that, you can see Nethermost Pike and uh, just overtopped from here by Dolly Wagon. The sun is beaming on Fairfield and Coffer Pike and that wonderful array towards Red Screes. And then I can see the Kentmere Fells with Ill Bell, with Cooldale Moor in front of it. And in front of that, and just in view ahead, is St. Sunday Crag, bathed in sunlight with that wonderful craggy face to the north. And then you got High Street, and all the ridge round by High Rays, running down to Lode Pot Hill, and down towards Ullswater. And in the far background, and I should have mentioned it in relation to uh, Red Screes. In the distance, I can see Ingleborough and Wernside, and then to the left of that, the Howgill Fells. Looking down Ullswater, you can see Crossfell and the Pennine Chain there. It's a majestic view. Come here and enjoy it on a perfect day like today. It's one of the joys of the Lake District to come to the top of Helvellyn. That's the view. Um, Of more interest is the immediate foreground. And Tom, the stones just to the west side of the summit ridge, uh, there's also loose stones. There's significance to them.
2: Yeah, this hilltop was uh, really badly eroded, uh, even worse than now uh, in in past times. And this was something, uh, a method, a stone scatter method, that was employed by the National Park several years ago. Uh, helicopters flying buckets and buckets of loose stones up here and scattering them all around with the intention that they form little microclimates for seeds and grasses to get uh, embedded behind uh, as really the only way that you can start to restore a turf on an exposed hilltop like this.
1: You can see even now that it's working. It's a thin turf but it is there, which is, otherwise it would just be bare soil and rock. Well, we've uh, done the view, pleasure and the excitement of the summit, not a thing you want to race away from, uh, but we're uh, actually traversing the ridge today. That is going over the range, and we're going to head over the shoulder of Nethermost Pike and down towards Wytheburn. So we'll make our way down. come down off the main summit. We got to swallow Scarf. And for me, it's just a a lovely moment because if I look down to my left, I look into Nethermost Cove. And it's one of my favourite of all places in the Lake District. You hardly ever see anybody in Nethermost Cove, but if you're in there, you feel as if you're in the most amazing wild place. Uh, You've got Nethermost Pike, which looks like a real pike when you're looking up at it from down there. It's backed by, of course... Since Sunday Crag, uh, which has got a cloud shadow running across it at the moment. It's just a wonderful place. Now, this brings me to an interesting point. You were mentioning to me privately, off the mic, about your one great love.
2: My one, well, I've got several great loves. Uh, my wife might listen to this. Um, my great wildlife love, uh, I guess, is, is moths something I fell in love with as I was starting to do my ecology degree. In a few weeks, uh, we'll be looking for something rather special just about where we are. When I first got this job and our property manager, Pete, found out that I had this love for and some expertise in moths, uh, he said, oh, there's something really special up here, but it's only ever been seen once. And he sent me the record, and would you believe it, Four months later, that 30-year-old record was removed from the database as being unverified. So it's a mountain moth. It doesn't have a common name. Its scientific name is Fiaris obsolitana. It feeds mainly on Bearberry in Scotland. It occurs only above 650 metres, sometimes up as high as 800 or 900 metres. We don't have any Bearberry in here, but it's also known to frequent areas with lots of cowberry and bilberry so its flight season in Scotland is in July and we're really determined to put that dot back on the map.
1: How on earth does anybody find moths like that?
2: They're uh, dawn flyers so moths obviously known to fly at night but actually different species fly at different times of night. If you put a moth trap out you know you'll get a certain group before midnight, a certain group to two o'clock, certain group to four o'clock some of them all through the night, but there are certainly that kind of uh, uh, times when they're more prevalent. For this one though, what makes it easier for us to find is it's a dawn flyer. So what we'll be doing is we'll be up here as the sun rises at four o'clock in the morning with sweep nets. Uh, and we'll be sweeping over the bilberry and the cowberry with our identification charts. They are very dull brown moths. (laughs) (laughs) They look like a lot of other dull brown moths. Um, But that doesn't make them any less special. No. And we'll be seeing if we can find them.
1: Dull they may be, but you've got to be smart to get them. Absolutely. Looking back, the sun's just... Glancing off uh, striding edge, and there's even at this time of day, I don't know what is it, six o'clock, there are people going along it. It attracts people at all times of the day, marvellous. Anyway, we'll head off. We fork on the path ahead of us down to Coombe Crags. Great spot, this. We've just come above Coombe Crags and we can look down into Coom Gill and see the conifers that run down into Thirlmere. And actually, although it's a reservoir, I have to take my hat off. It looks really handsome and a very beautiful lake from here. And the backdrop uh, up to Armboth Fell and Bell Crags and High Seat and BriBri Fell. Uh, it's, it's a lovely setting. Now, this particular landscape is United Utilities. It's all about water extraction. Now, you have got some kind of a partnership.
2: Yeah, so we started working with United Utilities uh, maybe a year ago. They were looking for partners that could help them shape this landscape uh, and and restore it and, and work with natural processes to get as much out of it as possible. What we're doing here is uh, we've entered into a partnership with um, Cumbria Wildlife Trust and Natural England. So it's four of us in this partnership with United Utilities as well. And we're looking to see how we can work with the traditional farming practices, uh, especially down at, at this south end, down at Wytheburn, uh, to see how they can work in harmony with different ways of restoring habitats and species and, and thinking about uh, obviously this is an area that suffered hugely in storm desmond and thinking how we can get more resilience into the landscape yeah because i
1: remember mines gill and the Coombe gill flushed out onto the main road on the a591 impassable for quite a while there was a lot of disturbance a lot of trees falling down so thinking it all like a, a clean
2: bill of health how would you recover this landscape There's a lot of things that we can look at to start with. Everything that we're doing is about working in harmony with the farming uh, at this end of the lake. We're looking down, for example, on some, some old tree guards, some old metal tree guards. Some of those trees actually didn't make it. We can redo those without any additional impact on the landscape. A lot of the work that we talked about on the other side of the hill with Arctic alpines, getting those back out on the crags over here as well, over at Steel Fell, and some of the gullies that that lead off that as a partnership we'll be looking at other works such as restoring the the high peat fells and getting those nice and wet again uh, and there'll be a bit of work as well around the wythburn beck uh, and, and looking at what can be done with that
1: you've mentioned working with a farmer at Westhead how does that work
2: There was a farming change down at this end of of the valley a few years ago, which has seen the introduction of a talented young shepherd, Matthew, and and we work with him and he brings those traditional hill farming skills in alongside ideas of modern farming. And what we're trying to get is a constant two-way dialogue. So, for example, we should always know where his best grazing is, he should always know where the most sensitive bits of habitat are we need to understand when he's got time constraints of months when he needs certain things to happen so that's where the dialogue goes and, and it's it's been a really really good start
1: we've seen two very distinct valleys in this comparatively short walk it's been a, a, a utter joy Ridding popular valley, former mining valley, altogether different character to this Thirlmere valley which has all these conifers draping the valley sides but with high fells running up either side. So the management techniques will obviously differ.
2: Yeah you'd think so. I think our experience is the principles are very similar. I think it's dialogue 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 is where you start and understanding what the different pressures are on the landscape, what the different interests are, whether those are uh, economic or traditional or cultural, making sure you've got that full picture is where we always start. Certainly um, areas like this where we're looking at what are now known as ecosystem services, so locking in carbon, making sure water's clean, reducing flood risk, that all forms part of the picture uh, of, of where we try to end up. The National
1: Park Partnership Plan is looking at a five-year plan of ideas and and, and vision. But of course, a valley like this, we're talking about 50 years. Does the John Muir Trust have that particular kind of vision?
2: Much like politics, we don't talk about politics too much, but there's a short-termism we have to be careful of, and we should be absolutely prepared that we're trying to make changes that we will never see. I mean, of course you want to see some of them. That should be the vision and and certainly if you look at where we started as an organisation that vision of what those landscapes could look like is starting to happen but there's lots more to do. So you're coming
1: to the end really of your extension period for this management arrangement you have here. Uh, What's your vision for the near future?
2: So we're waiting for the National Park Authority to uh, put out a tender for uh, a future lease uh, which was decided at their board last year Uh, we're told that will come out in the autumn, Uh, it's been difficult for them to put together with people getting together with Covid and all of that kind of stuff Um, but we're told that will be released in the autumn, we'll then be looking at at, uh, tendering for that We're, we're working really closely at the moment with the community especially through the parish council to understand what the other interests are Um, and how we can get a more holistic approach to this next stage. A huge part of that is the commoners, um, and uh, the uh, chair of the parish council, Rob, um, is uh, doing a great job to keep that dialogue open and and make sure that their voice is heard loud and clear in in the, the vision for what's next. It's a very
1: dynamic community da- here in Glenridding. In fact, the whole of the Oldswater Valley is, um, is really bubbling at the moment. So you're in the right place to build bridges and it's not over troubled waters here. Wow! Well, we made it through that tall gate into the enclosure here. That tall gate is to keep the deer out of this enclosure, which has got tall pines and there's a lot that's been felled and a lot of natural receding. Good to be at this point because this is this magical moment. Our listeners love our quickfire questions, Tom, and I'm sure you'll be on the ball. What is your first Lakeland memory?
2: My first Lakeland memory is aged about four. Being taken to um, the Low Door Hotel, I wow. think the Swiss Low Door we decided it probably was then. Uh, and sitting on a hill above it, no idea which one, and looking down onto it.
1: Amazing. Have you a favourite view?
2: And this is something that's steeped in uh, what was happening when it happened and uh, coming down off Great Gable where it had been absolutely siling it down all the time we were up there and the sun lifted. And you just got that panorama. Um, So as a a one moment in time, it would probably be that.
1: Yeah, I've got those sort of memories as well. It's magic where you just suddenly the window and there you see something. Uh, Tent or hotel?
2: Tent for me, hotel for my wife.
1: (laughs) Have you a favourite town or village in Lake District?
2: Seatoller Seathwaite. That sort of area, just from the memories of camping down there and, and really good times. Have you a favourite pub? Good memories of slopping into the old dungeon gill soaked through um, no immersed. so possibly possibly that would that would be one
1: uh what would be your perfect lakeland day
2: it would be a, a day on the fells where i come back absolutely unable to move those are the days that have stuck in my memory mm. where amazing things have happened Uh, I once saw a peregrine take a crow out in the air in front of me. All of those kind of things, those experiences. But I think you need to be really shattered to enjoy (laughs) a a day up here.
1: (laughs) A good jiggered day. Um, So, if you were Prime Minister for the day, what one thing would you do to safeguard the landscapes of Cumbria?
2: Money. Money for the the parks authorities. I think the cuts that, that all the national park authorities have seen have been really damaging, um, and regardless of which side of whatever fence you sit on, this place needs funding.
1: Absolutely. Money is
2: beginning at the end of making this
1: place permanently special. Okay, when the time comes and a few friends gather to remember you, and a special place that means a lot to you, is there somewhere in Cumbria where that might be?
2: Got to be the Wasdale Head Inn, right? But is there a particular reason? That's where the whole not all journey finished. Oh. Um, but also uh, memories of doing Pillar Rock and coming back down there and and all sorts of other things. Maybe that should have been my favourite pub as well.
1: Oh, yes. It's been wonderful to spend this time with you today, Tom. Thank you for spending it with And I think you've got something to say at the end.
2: Yeah, no, it's been a really good day. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, It's just I want to finish with a quick shout-out to a couple of young local lads that are doing the Bob Graham round over a number of trips uh, to raise money for the John Muir Trust. So 10-year-old Magnus and Joe, if you go onto our website and look for, search for Journey for Wildness, it'll take you through to their fundraising page and please support them. They've done something amazing.
1: Well, absolutely. If they're doing it at that age, Bob Graham himself will be impressed. Thank you.
0: Journey's end. Uh, we're at the car park by the church in Wytheburn turned out to be a lovely evening the visibility and the skies got clearer as we walked and we're in the shadow now of a, a, a large rhododendron bush all in blossom uh, birds in the background uh, w- uh, lovely to do a linear walk Today, Mark. Yeah. Or,
1: yeah, I've never done a linear walk over the range like that. No. I've done. I've been up and down several times in different ways, but never right over. So it was special. It's, it's always special doing something of this calibre, and interest. And we had a wonderful guest. You were saying earlier on the on one occasion you climbed.
0: Uh, Helvellyn three times by different
1: routes in a single day. Absolutely, yeah, this is one of the early days of researching my very first fell ranger book. I was cramming it as many routes into a day as I could. I was still living in Oxfordshire then. I was lodging in a a flat in Keswick, and I'd used all the daylight hours, and I'd go up and down every blooming (laughs) fell in every possible way. There we go. Um, Tom,
0: yep, very good. Interesting, really, to think about what's involved in managing these kind of landscape scale projects uh, say projects fells um, Mm. and indeed valleys here in Thirlmere and the kind of thinking the kind of collaborative thinking you need to do but also that long-term planning you know 25 50 years
1: yeah that's the nature of the John Muir Trust originally was set up with a concern of the loss of community connection with the landscape A body, a bit like the Friends of the Lake District, you could say, who see things with a longer-term vision. Now we've had some post. Ah, right. Uh, This is from listener
0: James Burrows. Uh, He writes in about uh, our episode in the Roslyn
1: Woods. Fabulous episode. What an inspiring couple, Joe and Daryl were. That's right. Yeah. Uh, He says, Mark Dave. I listened to the
0: latest podcast today. Amazing story, quite an inspiration. I discovered your podcast in January and they have made lockdown easier. I'm finally up to date. Ennerdale is a valley that I always think of when Mark asks his quickfire question what is your first Lakeland memory? My dad took me on a circuit of the lake back in the mid 90s. I've now nearly finished the Wainwrights 214 and I'm planning to finish on Starling Dodd in September, which is at the head of the valley and I've read various things over the years about the changes in the valley and a recent project to restore it. That's right, that's the Wild Ennerdale project, which has some bearing on today's podcast, actually. Yeah,
1: and Starling Dobbs, the last fell Wainwright researched. Yes. Maybe that's why he's doing it there. And what was the reason for that, Mark? There was a reason, wasn't there? Why the, uh, Probably just... Well, he was doing the Western Fells last, uh, and it was probably the most awkward one to get to.
0: <laughs> Another email. This is Jim Watson, regular listener. Mark, Dave, just had a wonderful hour listening to your country strider, Threlkeld. Excellent stuff. I've known Donald Angus and his family forever. I had a chat with him when we were up last October. He must be around 90 by now. <laughs> he and his pal Edwin Monkhouse, who farmed at Wesco and was mentioned in the podcast, took me up Scarfell Pike when I was 15 years old. Gosh. My mother worked at the Sanny. The scout hut was in Kilnhow, and I remember an ash tip there. Amazing. I learnt a few things I didn't know about Threlkeld. Thanks, Jim.
1: Jim, of course, did a cartoon of me years and years ago. Did he? He's a brilliant uh, artist. He is.
0: Yeah, yeah. He does yeah, cartoons for Latelyn Walker and Cumbria magazine. I That's think. it.
1: Um, thank you, Jim. And um, you've got a bit of a message as well, I think, Mark. Absolutely. If anybody listened to Ramblings last week with Claire Balding, they will have heard Debbie North in Malastack, where we've, of course, been in our time. Uh, her dear husband Andy was mentioned of course because he's in palliative care at the moment and I didn't realise he was in that plight and I contacted him and sort of exchanged a note with him today uh, and said we were going over Helvellyn and that I would be thinking of him every step of the way and Andy we're with you mate you're a hero you've been a hero for your wife hang in there boy you're a great man there you go, echoing those
0: sentiments as well Um, But that's it for us today. Our normal housekeeping. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can find 56 more episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social media.
1: At Countrystride1 on Facebook and Twitter.
0: If you'd like to support us, Mark and I both do this uh, for free, you can buy our debut book, The Threlkeld Walking Companion, which has been... Uh, flying out of the sales room. <laughs> uh, next up I think we're making a rare foray outside of Cumbria Mark. Absolutely mm, yes and I like this. Yeah it,
1: it, I love the Orchardales Dales, uh, just as you Dave yeah. and uh, I couldn't resist going to see the wonderful meadows around Mooka and uh, upper Swaledale. It's a perfect valley I
0: I adore that place really. So, yeah, it's a bit of a treat for both of us, isn't it? Erna? It's a holiday. It's a, it's
1: a, <laughs> We're on it, holiday.
0: It's our first holiday in 58 episodes. <laughs> right, okay, that's it from us today from uh, wythburn Church and the little car park here beside Thirlmere after our longest walk on the Fells in, in many a month, Mark, and we've had a, a great day. Oh, lovely. Here. I'm fresh as a daisy. Hello and welcome.
1: Goodbye. (laughs) Hello, goodbye. You say hi, I say hello. You say stop and I say go, go, go. Wow. Oh, oh no.